It's The World This Week. The World This Week in partnership with The Daily Beast. Joining us from London, Nico Hines, world editor of The Daily Beast. How are you? I'm well. Good evening. Thanks for being with us. Thanks as well to freelance journalist Aisha Gul-Sert. How are things? Good. Alive. Here. She's alive. (laughs) She's here. Uh, Also here, sitting next to her, Fabrice Rousselot, editorial director for The Conversation France. Good evening. How are things? Very well, thank you. All right. Freelance photo reporter Amar Abed-Rabo is with us as well. How, How are you? All good. All good. Okay, good. By the way, you can listen, like, like, and subscribe to The World This Week on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other fine streaming services. For four days, the world waited on word of that tourist sub and the five inside who'd gone to explore the wreckage of the Titanic until, until Thursday. This is an incredibly unforgiving uh, environment down there uh, on the seafloor. Uh, and uh, the debris is consistent with a catastrophic uh, implosion of uh, the vessel. Fabrice Rousselot, what's the takeaway from this story? Um, there, there are different takeaways. I've learned, for example, that there's absolutely no regulations for those kind of uh, submarines if they are in international waters, so that you can do whatever you want, which seems to be quite incredible. Um, Obviously, the takeaway is, is that uh, some regulations have to be put in place for, for those types of expeditions. I mean, if you look at the way uh, they did things and, and for, the, for the first information we're having from OceanGate, uh, apparently um, there all the conditions of security were not there. Um, there is a discussion about a carbon fiber composite that was part of this uh, vessel that apparently doesn't resist pressure very well. I, I read in the New York Times yesterday or today that even James Cameron mm. uh, had some kind of a, you know uh, you know uh, uh, fear about that that you know, on vessel. So I think uh, other than you know the fact that five people were p- paid so so much money for that you know trip down down to the Titanic, I think we have to take away some lessons about regulations about this. What we I think it's called frontier tourism, which is kind of extreme tourism where people. And do extreme things, and if we don't want those things to happen and end up like you know in 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 a, in a cauchemar scenario, then we, we need to do something in terms of regulations. Yeah, it, it's it's uh, it's ironic that uh, news of uh, their disappearance surfaced the same day. I should assert that uh, the United Nations uh, approved a treaty of the high seas for the first time, and it also a reminder that. We've actually been to space more than we have to the bottom of the ocean as humans. Well, the thing is that money buys anything, but it's very interesting what Fabrice was saying about about, about James Cameron, because James Cameron, before doing the, the this is world-renowned director who did Titanic, but mm. he he's known to in, for making lots of research before going into a, any cinematographic project, so he knows what he's talking about. And I watched the ABC News interview that he gave, and he mentioned two things. One, how destiny seems to repeat itself in terms of, here is uh, centuries later, another ship that goes to seize the wreckage and does become a shipwreck itself in a way. That's the first thing. And, and the second thing, he said that there's been a lot of writings, actually, a lot of reports that been sent that have been sent by the community in order to warn that these types of, um, ex, uh, how do you call that, adventures, uh, expeditions are not, um, fully secure yet. Mm. So the warnings have been given, but that's why, in a way, money buys everything, even 
whether it's the moon, you know, the stars or the deep down sea. All right, we'll get back to that money issue and this adventure tourism. You mentioned, uh, both of you, James Cameron, uh, the director of Titanic, who, once the news had come out uh, that all hope was lost, spoke of his doubts about Ocean View's tourist submersible. A loud bang on the hydrophones. Loss of transducer or transponder. Loss of comms. I knew what happened. Sub imploded. Now, the Daily Beast spoke to James Mester. That's a deep water salvage master based in the U.S. state of Washington. Uh, he'd been offered a trip aboard the Titan's predecessor, the Antipods. Uh, and he said that uh, none of the equipment that I saw inside the submersible was up to that level. So I just chose not to go. Uh, Nico Hines, much has been made of the fact that... Uh, uh, some of the equipment was the kind you find at a home improvement store. <laughs> That's right. But I think that might be something of a red herring. I think uh, apparently it's very common to use uh, basic, simple, like uh, controllers and uh, reliable machinery for um, v vessels like this. I, I actually went on a, um, one of the space shuttles in Miami um, to have a look around. It wasn't going anywhere, I hasten to add. Um, <laughs> but they made the point that they had um, deliberately used really old switches, really basic machinery, simple components, because they knew that those components would last over 10, 20 years because they had a long um, uh, kind of lead time with them. Um, so I think the things that were inside weren't necessarily a problem. What, where the problem is, is that they didn't use that long history of submarine um, trips. You know, I think the first submarine was going down in something like 1930. So you've got almost 100 years of experience that you can call on. And for almost all of those, they used a steel hull because it's incredibly hard on any material to go to these sorts of depths. And rather than relying on that experience, this guy thought that he could cut a corner, save some money, and, well, we've seen what's gone wrong with that. D did he cut a corner, Fabrice Rousselot, or was it, or was it that he, uh, because he started out as a pilot, thought, uh, oh, I, I know better? The thing is, we, we mentioned earlier, but this is a point we have to make, this is, there is tourism involved. He's not like by himself trying to do stuff and cutting. He can cut corners if he wants to by himself in his little submarine. If you bring in tourists, if you bring in people, and it's, if it's supposed to be a touristy thing, then you have to have some regulations, you have to have some security. So you have, you have five people on board. Most of them, you know, paid a lot of money for that. So, I mean... I could understand that, you know, he's been justifying his, his, you know, his expeditions by saying that money, I use it for scientific research and everything, which is, you know, which is fine. It's interesting. And, you know, it, it, it's the only way to go forward. That's fine. But again, if you're bringing tourists to those, you know, vessels, you have to be sure that they are safe. You have to be sure that they are in the right components. And you have to be sure that whatever you're doing and all the components that don't come from Home Depot, as you said. Right. The, the owners of uh, the Titan insist this wasn't uh, uh, thrill-seeking thrill -seeking for billionaires. It was bona fide undersea exploration. The intent of all of these missions is not to conduct joy rides down to this wreck. Everyone who goes down there has extreme reverence for 
the wreck as a gravesite. And if anything, everyone who goes down there is going there to preserve the memories and to document uh, the gravesite itself. Amarabad Rabo? Uh, what's very ironic with what we saw about uh, the James Cameron is that the guy who advised Cameron uh, for this movie, uh, the French uh, ocean specialist or researcher himself... Paul-Henri Narjolet. Exactly. He didn't have the doubts that, 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 that Cameron had, and it's, it's quite ironic to see that. Uh, for me, coming from the Middle East, uh, of course, the whole week was about uh, the total difference was it in media treatment, but also in means uh, put on the table to, to get uh, these five people, while this is also very ironic or very cruel, the same week we had this ship uh, in Greece with 750 people on board, and, and I don't remember the last toll, was it uh, 500 or 200 dead, but I mean, 100 times more. And uh, of course it wasn't for hours, uh, even now we're discussing this uh, this story for 10 minutes. So I explained to all my friends that media have also to do with something rare. This is much more rare, unfortunately, etc. Et but I mean, I understand and I hear the anger of many people who, who don't get it. Yeah, the, the New York Times now reports that uh, the U.S. Navy using data from a secret network of underwater sensors uh, designed to track hostile submarines detected, quote, an anomaly consistent with an implosion or explosion in the vicinity of the Titan as early as Sunday. But they insist, uh, uh, Nico Hines, that uh, they weren't certain. And of course, to answer Amar, Nico, uh, the uh, the difference is we know everyone's dead uh, on board that uh, overcrowded fishing vessel in the, Mediter in the Mediterranean, whereas here some were still holding out hope. Yeah, I mean, you have to say that the U.S. Navy and whoever it was that made the decision to withhold that information, but also the company itself, because it's actually now become pretty clear, if you read between the lines, that they heard a loud bang over their um, communications devices at the exact same time that all of the equipment went down and they could no longer get through to them. So they must have had a very, very strong idea of what had happened themselves. And it's absolutely the case that that was what turned this into a several multi-day rolling camera, 24 news, perfect story, because it's a, very much a kind of Hollywood situation, isn't it? A race against time. We knew we had 96 hours to go. So you know, a lot of TV channels even had literal kind of countdown clocks on the screens. Um, and in fact, people in the know knew all along that the story was already over. Um, so that does leave a slightly sour taste in the mouth. And you wonder about the motivation of those people. Obviously, it's fair enough that the company still wanted to go and check just in case they had survived. Um, but I think pretending that this was an ongoing rescue operation when it wasn't was somewhat disingenuous. Aishagul Ellen on Twitter uh, says, by failing to share their data and acting as if they were in a heroic rush against time with oxygen running low, they uh, conned the public and media. Were the families informed? Well, the thing is, I've lived in the U U.S., but especially, you know, particularly in L.A. for a long time. In L.A., we, we are known for watching for hours and days car chases of a police running for <laughs> hours after a car. This really reminded me, in, of course, it's a tragedy, but, but kind of this. Journalism 101 is what? If a dog bites a, a human, it's not interesting. If a human being bites a dog, it's interesting. The, 
very unfortunately, what Amar said so rightfully is that we have become accustomed, normalized, the fact that there are migrants dying in the Mediterranean for years. And, you know, since the, I remember, especially since 2015, since the deal was brokered between the EU and, and Turkey. But the thing is, is what, what really caught me and in, in, in this story is there have been a lot of tributes that have been paid to this father and son who were in the in the in the sub in in Titan yeah, sub. Yeah, the scions of a Pakistani billionaire family. Exactly, and the fact that there have been so many fathers and mothers and children on that boat this week who lost their lives trying to find something else, not for adventure, not in order to see some some history wreckage of, of the Titanic, but in order to be able to find life elsewhere and who found death, I think is what really comes should come out of the story and how we have forgotten in a way our humanity with all this. Have we forgotten our humanity, Fabrice Rousseau? And to some extent, yes. I think if this tragedy could be used to question the journalism, the way we do journalism today, I think that would be a good, you know, a good thing. Um, and the comparison was made in the French press many, many times that, uh, you know, why spend so much, you know, uh, so much means, so much resources and so many, so much time on that expedition? Well. The, the, the tragedy in, in, you know, of the coast of Greece was dealt with in three days and the media just all of a sudden stopped talking about it. So I think if we could think and look deeply at the way we do news and the way we react to those stories, that could be a, a good lesson from, from those two, two tragedies. Final point on this, that, that there's yeah. also the, the aspect, and I should go mentioned it, that uh, there were billionaires on board paid $250,000, Ruth on Twitter saying the laws of physics apply to everyone. Exactly. I mean, uh, as Igor said, uh, money can buy everything, but obviously not. Uh, I, I was wondering in a very human, basic way, in this very, very little space, I think it's twice the stable or something like that, when you have five people who are more or less having fun or uh, drinking or thinking about what they will see later, I mean, tourists, having fun, and then at some point they realize, I don't know if it was very quick or if there's maybe 10 minutes or maybe 10 hours, I don't know, of realizing that they won't be, that the little joystick of a Nintendo cannot bring them back anymore to what, what happened, what, how, how, how it went. It's, it's quite interesting. Maybe one day we'll see a novel or a movie about these last moments. But I wonder on a very, uh, very down-to-earth basic in France, if you go uh, and get crazy a little bit uh, over the mountain uh, and and get lost, and then they have to send a helicopter to to find you. you yeah, there was a pay. famous there was a famous case a few years exactly. ago with those young people in the yeah. Alps who exactly. went out in, in a in a blizzard. Exactly, and they had to pay a lot of money later for the rescue teams. Uh, and I wonder in this case where obviously millions have been spent, who is paying for that? Are they American taxpayers? Is that the billionaire's family? Is, that, is there an insurance or something like that? It's, these will be maybe next week questions, but it's interesting. Nico Hines, your religion when it comes to adventure tourism? <laughs> well, I'm certainly not going to be tempted now. I think um, <laughs> what is really interesting is if you look um, at the website of this company, which is one of the first things I did when this, when this broke, was to go and look at the disclaimers. What do they say on the website? And they make a kind of point of almost 
almost make it try to they tried to almost make it sound exciting and adventurous the fact that it wasn't properly classified that this ship hadn't been put through tests and approved by any official bodies anywhere and and what they say on there is it's just like SpaceX you know Elon Musk's private um, space exploration company and I think that's probably where the next story on this comes because although there might not be that many billionaires queuing up to get into a submarine anytime soon there certainly will be when it comes to commercial flights to space and I guess it's only a matter of time before one of those goes kaboom as well and that time it will be on the cameras. You have to turn the clock back two decades to the second intifada. For the last time, Israel used a helicopter gunship against West Bank militants. That's exactly what happened this past Monday in the Palestinian refugee camp in the uh, city of Jenin. The next day, Jewish settlers were targeted at a gas station shooting spree. Israel's most far-right government ever includes uh, West Bank settlers who don't hold back. The time has come for a military operation in Judea and Samaria. Yes, to return to the targeted assassinations from the air, take down buildings, put up barriers, expel terrorists, and pass the death penalty law for terrorists in second and third reading. Amar Abed Rabo, we talk about stories that get coverage and others that don't. This one didn't get that much coverage here. No, didn't at all. I mean, we were all busy with with other things. Uh, it's terrible. And also, as uh, Fabrice said a bit earlier, we got used or we got, uh, I don't know, vaccinated or insensitive or I don't know what is the right word. But Is it because the tensions have been going up and down for exactly. the past few months? For the past few years, it's, it's never really stopped. Of course, now having a far-right uh, government doesn't help. But we also, on, not only here, in many other places, that when you do the, the, the very tough uh, solution, let's say, when you go uh, destroying the houses, when you go tough on people, etc., it doesn't stop uh, the anger. On the contrary, it makes it even stronger and stronger. And this situation, as long as we are in this uh, tunnel of hatred from both sides, it won't get better, unfortunately. I, I do think that one of the key points there is, is a kind of disengagement from the international community. That's why also there is less coverage. But I have to say that the context today is one of the worst ever. What, what, I mean, ironically, the north of the West Bank was seen like, you know, 10, 15 years ago as a maybe a, some kind of a test a pilot for disengagement for maybe the, the you know the Arab state and so on and so on after the Oslo and now this is what's happening but it's happening for two reasons the first one is on both sides it's extremists uh, taking over uh, if you look at what's been happening with the government Netanyahu's government have been taking hostage by the far right if you if you listen to that minister calling for more violence there is like people killing each other he's calling for like a military operation and on the other side it's the same thing the the young people don't recognize themselves in the um, Palestinian authority there is nothing there for them so basically on both sides you have extremists taking over, fighting against each other. Each time there is something happening, there's revenge, and so on and so on. And it's building up. And again, the fact that the international community has been looking the other way, except for the UN, you know, calling, oh, you know, this is, you know let, let's be careful, which we see all the time. But nobody's looking at it. And nobody's, uh, you know, and since Trump and other people decided that they wouldn't solve that issue and they don't want to get into that mess anymore, 
then yeah, it's it's been o- totally overlooked. Uh, and, and the international community, I should assert, we can include neighboring Arab states who'd rather. That's true, but we should definitely and mostly uh, include the U.S. I think the U.S. has been greatly failing in its di- diplomacy and policy in regards to the Palestinian-Israeli issue. Um, I think also that, you know, we talk a lot about whether some wars are just and aren't, and some aren't just, but this one is an absolutely unequal conflict. In one hand, you mentioned at the beginning, uh, you have an Israeli state that has been using really advanced drones, artillery, and what, like Amar said, on the other hand, and, and Fabrice, this youth that uses basically stones in their own body, whether to do hunger strikes or to be used as bombs. What's true is that there is that where we are today, Israel should be condemned by because it's violating international law and it's been doing more and more. And what's so sad is that in front of our eyes, we see a population, a country that's just like after the Oslo agreements, that's just Palestinians are losing and doing all their best in order to stay and to stand. Uh, Nico Hines, we see as well Israel torn apart. It seems to be a two-track approach by this government a hard line when it comes to the Palestinians, and uh, that judicial overhaul, which for now is on pause, but it's just a pause. Yeah, and of course, for certain elements within Netanyahu's government, this is exactly what they want. They want tensions to be flaring. They want the escalation to be getting worse and worse. You know, the United Nations finally came out this morning and said that this was spiralling out of control. Well, For certain people within that coalition government, that's exactly what they want, because like the clip we heard, it gives them an excuse to be even harsher, to force through um, some of these even stricter rules. Because when when, when people in the country see flames and they see conflict and they see dead bodies, they're going to be much more tolerant of strict hardline rules that the government can try and enforce. So this is all part of the plan, and that's the really, really scary thing. Time now to report on a toast among teetotalers. Joe Biden fetting India's prime minister at a White House banquet, part of Narendra Modi's uh, first state visit to uh, Washington. Uh, downplayed lectures on democratic backsliding in India, celebrated trade and defense ties, as well as the rise of an Indian diaspora. That's more than four million strong with, for instance, the late mother of U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris, born in India, uh, welcoming India's prime minister. It's uh, it's about domestic politics these days in America. Uh, yeah, it's about a couple of things, but it's about two main things in that case. First of all, I have to say that Modi was delighted. I mean, to, to have such a state visit, it, it looked, I mean, if you look at this, you know, the, the pictures of the whole visit, he's smiling all the time. Uh, and you have to remember that that, that, that leader has been criticized a lot for... He couldn't you know, get a visa a few years Exactly, back. exactly, for, you know, for basically uh, having some kind of very hard line, let's, you know, euphemism, nationalism, Indian nationalism in India, uh, you know, uh, attempt, you know, attained against, you know, human rights, freedom of the press, um, you know, um, religious minorities as well. Um, so he's been very happy. But for the U.S., there's two things there. The first one is... Uh, they got this opportunity with with Modi in Washington to basically try to move move him away from the Russian sphere 
I mean, we know that India is getting a lot of arms and the military you know, aid from, from Russia, so that's one point to be made. India was also benef you know, benefiting a lot from the, uh, the low prices of oil and gas from Russia, so, the, you know, so that's one thing. And the other thing is China, obviously. Uh, Biden is, is trying to take advantage of this long standoff between India and, India and China with the share a long border. Uh, and so for, for Biden, it's like, okay, this is geopolitics, uh, you know, as usual, I would say. But with the thing is, the, the puzzle of geopolitics has moved a lot and, and you know, uh, since Ukraine. And all those, you know, middle-sized, you know, uh, countries are also getting their, their, uh, their voices heard. And Modi is taking advantage of that as well. Yeah, it's interesting. Narendra Modi joining the rarefied club of world leaders who've been invited more than once for a joint uh, session of Congress address. Uh, Modi uh, garnering bipartisan applause in the U.S. Congress with his implicit digs at superpower rival China. <clears throat> Mr. Speaker, the dark clouds of coercion and confrontation are casting their shadow in the Indo-Pacific. The stability of the region has become one of the central concerns of our partnership. We share a vision of a free, open, and inclusive Indo-Pacific. A, a free, open, and inclusive Indo-Pacific, uh, Nico Hines. Uh, that veiled reference uh, to China accompanied also by something which is quite historic, the U.S. agreeing to uh, build uh, jet fighter engines in India. General Electric got the deal. Uh, it's moving sensitive technology to a country that officially is not an ally of the United States as such. Yeah, well, I think very often if you look at the military um, angle to these things. You get to see the real picture. And, you know, traditionally, India relied on Russia to supply its weaponry, its munitions. Uh, and since, I think it was up until 2005, 80% of India's military imports came from Russia. And now, just a few years later, the majority come from the United States. And I think that shows how the US has been able to wean India off of its reliance of Russia. And that's a really crucial strategic goal. You know, it's just this year that India has become, has overtaken China as the biggest population in the world. They've still got a long way to go when it comes to military and economic might, but India is the coming power. China potentially will start to dwindle away as its economy struggles with the aging population. And so the United States wants to position itself to be on the side that is coming strong, even if they're not as quite as free and open as Modi made out when he was speaking to Congress. I'm Robert Rabo. Uh, is this uh, the beginning of a, a, a beautiful alliance, or is this just transactional? You know, it's probably transaction. But it, I mean, the, what I see mainly is the the, the signal that is sent to, to 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 other places in the world where people who have, let's say, the same profile or the same background as as Moody in terms of nationalism or in terms of. Uh, Dealing with uh, with minorities, anti-Muslim rhetoric, anti-Muslim rhetoric, etc. Uh, well, they they have a huge signal of uh, a green light. Like uh, uh, it's not a problem for us. You know, you're you're welcome. While on the other hand, we are very tough on Orban or other people who who share the same uh, ideology, more or less. 
Uh, on this very set, by the way, Aishugul Sir, you'll be interested to hear this uh, on Thursday. I'm afraid what you're going to say. <laughs> we had a guest saying India is not at all like Turkey. It is a democracy. Look at recent. This is a, pro, a Modi supporter. Look at recent local elections uh, uh, where the ruling BJP uh, got kicked out of power. François Picard, are you provoking me? <laughs> um, well, the thing that Amar mentioned is true, is that is, in a way it's saying countries like, you know, Hungary and um, Turkey, are, are, and are they democracies or are they authoritarian uh, regimes? And that's very interesting. It's the same thing with we call right now India a democracy, but is it really a democracy with everything going on? Which is, which is kind of the faux pas that, that uh, President Biden did this week of Antony Blinken spending so many, you know, hours trying to make the relations between China, a democracy, and an autocracy, a dictatorship. And right when he came back, President Biden calling, um, I think it was yesterday, um, China um, or Xi Jinping um, a dictator. Well, let's talk about that. <laughs> uh, earlier in the week, uh, uh, there was fury in Beijing. The U.S. president, it was a campaign reception in California, branded Xi a dictator. This, uh, the same week when the Chinese hosted uh, uh, Biden's, as, as Aishigo was saying, Biden's Secretary of State. We had an incident that uh, caused uh, some, uh, some confusion, you might say. But, President, but the Secretary Blinken had a great trip to China. I expect to be meeting with President Xi sometime in the future, in the near term, and uh, I don't think it's had any real consequence. So there you go. Case closed, I should go. What can I say? But I can say something. Um, it's, it's, it's very interesting of how we forget that we are right now in France. France is hosting on what? July 14th, the Bastille Day. Who is the guest of honor? Modi. So in a way, all these superpowers, all these countries are trying to charm Modi. But Modi is actually quite, you know, not that I know him personally, but he's quite smart in the sense of he's not cutting his ties with Russia, with Iran, um, and, and with China, despite the fact that they've been, you know, um, they've had conf confrontations in the past, but he's also accepts to be treated and welcomed in France and in the U.S. as the kingmaker in a way. Excuse me, Fabrice Rousselot, for crudely speaking about money, but uh, <laughs> the well, French are trying to sell uh, marine rafales to the Indians. I think it has something to do with it. But I, I was about <laughs> to say, this debate we had about China for like uh, 70 years, remember, about, you know, should we engage with China? Should we, is this a dictatorship? And now the problem is most of the regi those regimes are in between, you know, Turkey, I'm not going to talk about Turkey, but you can ask a question. Uh, you can ask a question about India. You can ask, a, you know, MBS was was here all week, Saudi Arabia. So now the question is, okay, how do we address those regimes? Uh, do we decide that we don't deal with them at all, except that they have a lot of power in terms of economy, in terms of business, and in terms now also in geopolitics. So what we're seeing is we're seeing the West all of a sudden, depending on the situation, changing their words and... Uh, President Biden seems confused himself about the whole incident. It was, it's been a bit confusing. Uh, <laughs> so of course they are confused because uh, if they talk in private, they call them dictators. Mm -hmm. But if they receive them in Congress, they, they applaud them. So that's mm -hmm. an issue. 
All right, a very different tone when it comes to China from France's president. Emmanuel Macron hosting uh, the uh, Chinese prime minister and praising Li Qiang for attending a major climate finance summit here in Paris, where, for instance, uh, Macron hailed on the sidelines a debt restructuring deal for Zambia, much needed for a country in default. Macron also talked up sustainable lending to avoid future debt traps. France is playing a key role and we need to have sustainable financing models. If you cancel the debt, that means nobody will lend uh, in future if you tell the lenders, well, we're cancelling all the debt. Since these are models that are not self-financing, well, good luck if you want to find people to lend, lend money. We said to the Chinese, look, you have to join us for the global framework. We applied the global framework to Chad and now for Zambia, to Zambia. Uh, Nico Hines, you hear that? We're not going back to the days of Tony Blair when the with the millennial goals and uh, the, when they when they can't there was all that debt relief. Uh, what he's saying instead is that uh, we're going to have to work uh, with basically all the countries that do have uh, funding to uh, do what the, he's called sustainable lending. Yeah, I do think there's some, been some quite interesting thoughts. Uh -huh bubbling up from these kind of these meetings this week. Uh, you know, one of the ideas is that perhaps for, you know, the fundamental problem is if you're a poor country, it's going to cost you an awful lot more to do anything to do with infrastructure. You know, say, for example, you wanted to put um, build a new solar power plant, which is exactly what we need to combat the climate change issues. If you're a poor country and you need to borrow you know, a billion dollars in order to be able to build all of this infrastructure in your country. It's going to cost you an awful lot more than it would cost, say, France to build the exact same um, infrastructure plant because of the huge high cost of borrowing for that country. Because for reasonable reasons, you know, lenders don't think it's safe to give that money to that country. So I, I do think trying to combat that by thinking about ways around it are very, very important. One of the proposals that's been kicking around this week is to say that the World Bank should come in as the guarantor if it's an infrastructure project that's going to aid environmentalism. And I think that could potentially be a very good idea. I know we haven't got to a lot of big solutions that have been signed off this week, but at least some of these ideas are being explored and some of these great minds around the world are, are coming up with ideas. And I think the idea of redrawing the World Bank and the IMF, which were set up after the Second World War, and in a very, very different situation, trying to redraw those financial institutions to actually be helpful to the developing world in the 21st century is a fantastic, really, really important idea. And hopefully one day these, these ideas can actually come to fruition. Amor Abed Rabo? Uh, one of the ideas I heard also was about uh, getting the private sector also to help and to, to give, to lend money. But when we see that already with, I mean, with, with 60 or 70 years of, uh, of this system of World Bank, IMF, etc., the, the huge problems of debt that, uh, that were just mentioned now, and these are related to politics. So sometimes some debt are released, some erased or released or things like that. So if you have the private sector, you, you won't have this flexibility, let's say. It might be much more tough. Yeah, Zambia is and a case of where they, there was some dodgy private lenders that were part of the problem. Exactly. So I don't see it as a solution. I see it as adding to the problem. 
I think this whole thing, I mean, it's very personal, but it's, it's, it was probably a, like a diplomatic test for President Macron to see who are his friends and who, who would come take the pain, etc. follow-up, Fabrice Rousselot? Yeah, I was just, you know, Nico is right. Those are great ideas, but that's a problem too. They are only ideas. I mean, what, what I think was lacking in that summit is some kind of sense of urgency. Zambia got something out of it, but there's like 55 other countries are in default and need, needed to be solved. Uh, reforming the uh, IMF and the World Bank, It's a great idea, but it's going to take years and years. And if you recapitalize, uh, you need I mean, the uni United States to sign off exactly, on that. They're, that, the, that, they're the, the main Senate, shareholder. They won't, they won't do that. I mean, the, the whole you know, uh, uh, $100 billion, you know, aid that they, they kind of committed to, I'm sorry to say, but there was $100 billion in 2009, in 2015, and now again. So I, I think this is a great thing. Maybe, you know, it's a great thing to have a summit. It's a great thing to have the media and cover it and everything else. But if you don't take concrete steps and it doesn't lead to something that is very concrete for those countries, then, then it doesn't serve any purpose. I sure, sir. See... I, I I am kind of losing faith in all these summits, you know, summits more and more. But the thing that Macron likes hosting them. Yes, Macron <laughs> loves, likes a lot loves. of things. It doesn't mean he has grand ideas. And one of the things that is not a grand idea of Monsieur Emmanuel Macron is that he has been also this week trying to ban some environmental activists of uh, some groups. And I think that's for me, at least I have, I think it, it has drawn my attention more than this summit, I must say, in terms of calling, um, you know, the interior minister, Gérard Darmanin, calling um, eco-demonstrators eco-terrorists and And in a country where, where France, we were talking about India, trying to promote itself as the country of human rights and freedom of expression, to ban, uh, you know, organizations that are actually organizations who sometimes are not even NGOs, but people's own uh, efforts in trying to bring light to the problem of, and of the climate uh, issue um, and to ban them like this and, and, and to say that this is not an issue of freedom of expression, it's violence, but actually it's this country's own poli police that has been using a lot of violence, I think, in the past few weeks and months against demonstrators of climate. That is That is something that we ought to talk about more than, again, you know, billions of, of dollars that are being promised yeah, it's, and it's, never delivered. It's, a, it, it's kind of a domestic issue, uh, the government banning this, this uh, collective. It's a collective mm. called uh, Uprisings of the Earth. Um, over recent clashes, uh, ban demonstrations that still went forth. It's unclear, though, whether this ban, Amar Abed Rabo, is going to stand in, in, in the courts. Human Rights Watch accuses France of shooting the messenger here. I, I agree with Ashagulu. It's, it's a problem coming from the, the country of human rights, as very often France markets itself. Why are they doing it? Because uh, Emmanuel Macron, doesn't that lose him votes when he bans an environmentalist group? Because the, you have an interior, I'm sorry, you have an inter, there is not you, of course, François Picard. <laughs> This country has an interior, <laughs> he is my an interior, interior minister, minister, whether yes. I like it or not. Um, uh, uh, that that has been um, a lot about trying to promote police and by promoting police by calling civilians violent and 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 um, sorry I interrupted you but 
We, I was going to say that. So <laughs> no, no, I mean, you have to understand. What, what's is, the calculus here? The, the calculus is it's a political decision mm. only but, but, to please the right and everything exactly. else. Macron has cho chosen his side. I mean, what, you know, when he was re-elected, people were saying, okay, where, where, which way is he going to go? Is he going to go to the, trying to attract some of the left? Is he going to try to attract... He's definitely chosen his side. And on this issue, it's a political decision. And I think it's a disastrous one because it's going to lead to more demonstration. It's going to lead to more, you know, a movement and everything else. And the, the, the other thing I want to mention is, how is it that in France, when we talk about ecology, we have to come to violence on both sides? And that's a problem. If we can't talk to people about, you know, ecology or those issues, which are real issues. The, you know, are you saying things, that it's both sides that are violent? Oh, well, the, 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 you know, the, uh, the uh, movement, the soulèvement de la terre in French, you know, they, are, they have been, you know, uh, accused of some violence. And there's a judicial pass for this. They should go to court. They shouldn't be dissolved as, as a movement. But there's been also, France has been criticized for the response of the, of the police, which is true. And there's some, you know, investigations going on. So my problem is... Th those issues are concerning for French people. Why are they become so violent? And why do we only talk about violence? That shouldn't be the case. And that's a problem for democracy. Sitting uh, across the channel, Nico Hines, is this just a, a French issue? This uh, uh, you need to be violent to get the attention of the cameras or are people more violent or is there a, a, a debate over how you win over a public opinion? I know where you are. You have people who glue themselves to roads and throw tomato juice at paintings. Yeah, so I think there's different ways to get the attention of the cameras, isn't there? The old-fashioned way is to cause a riot and have something on fire because a flaming orange picture will always look good on the front of a newspaper or on the TV channels. Um, and then there's another way of doing it, which is to try and be more inventive, uh, more crazy. There was a um, thing at the World Snooker Finals where Just Up Oil came in, um, jumped onto the table in the middle of the um, snooker game and everyone tut tut tutted and said how appalling this was. Um, but lo and behold, the next day on the back of all the newspapers, there was this image of the guy with the Just Up Oil t-shirt and so it's always been the case that in order to get the attention that you need for your cause you need to go so far that the majority of people think you've gone too far and so there's always that tension I think you know you go back how a hundred years and the suffragettes were being called um, terrorists and crazy stupid women who were taking things too far well perhaps but they were at the forefront of a movement and I think it's really important that we remember that it's for all of us that these climate protesters are going a bit too far, are, are changing the conversation and are getting the message out there. And are people getting that, Nico? Well, I think the more people hear the message, the more they realise that it's something that's become part of the, um, the, the mainstream. And there's been an interesting, there's been some interesting polling recently. Um, Keir Starmer, who's the leader of the opposition Labour Party and is currently the favourite to become the next Prime Minister, has suddenly started talking a lot more about green issues. And that's because it turns out that voters actually do want to hear green proposals that are going to improve our situation in the future. And so I think 
eventually, bit by bit, and this is a kind of a generational thing, I'm sure, you know, as the, as the uh, younger generation gets older, it matures into a voting age, they do want plans in place right now to secure their future so that they can live to be middle-aged like us. Oh, you just call us middle-aged, Nicolines. <laughs> there's, there, there, we've been talking about dissonance throughout this show in, in, in what our political leaders want, what perhaps their constituents want. You had the French president talking up green initiatives, but also this week championing big industry, arriving at uh, the Paris Air Show in an H-160 French military helicopter. Uh, the French president uh, who played salesman for uh, military hardware and for Airbus passenger planes. There were orders of uh, some 500 for just one uh, Indian domestic airliner. Amr, you were at the, the Paris Air Show. And, yes. and, you know, they talked up the fact that they're going to try to go green and uh, have exactly. green fuel by the year 2050. But, of course, that's a long ways away. It's a very long way. Uh, the, the problem with these issues is that... Uh, as, as Nick said, it's uh, the voters on, on local elections, they, they go green more and more. In France, there are cities that are ruled by, by, by the Greens. Uh, but then when it, there's too much violence, it's too noisy and you cannot hear the message sometimes. But to go back to Le Bourget, uh, if Macron didn't sell uh, the, the airplanes or didn't do the show or didn't go that far, uh, people would also be angry after him. I mean, it's also part of his job to promote uh, something like Airbus, that is a French and European monument, and that, uh, I mean, he should be also a salesman for Airbus. There's been record amounts of uh, uh, airline tickets sold this summer while we're all clamoring uh, for a radical change to go greener. Let he or she who's not booked an airline ticket this summer cast the first stone. Fabrice Rousselot. I haven't booked yet, but I will. <laughs> uh, no, no, but that's, that's, that's you know, the, the question of people are concerned about, you know, all those green issues and obviously what's going to happen to the planet. At the same time, on, on a day-to-day -day level, uh, some people don't, you know, don't do the job, but also they don't do the job because what we said earlier, because that dialogue about those issues is not there. If we see only people screaming at each other, if we see Macron going to the Bourget on one side, promoting ecology on the other, you know, and dissolving a movement in the middle, what, what, what's, what's the logic to all of this? So I think people need to understand the issues better. better. It's, it's, it's a responsibility of the media. It's responsibility of the government. It's responsibility of the citizens. So we, you know, everybody should get together. At the moment, it's kind of a brouhaha, as we say in French. It's all mixed up. And nobody understands what they should do or shouldn't do. And that's, that's a problem. All right. We'll have to leave it there. Uh, I want to thank you so much, uh, Fabrice Rousselot. I want to thank Aishugul Sert, Amar Abed Rabo, Nico Heinz in London. Thank you for being with us here in the world this week. <laughs> <laughs>